Hey everybody and welcome to the Health Tech Podcast where we talk about everything healthcare and technology. I'm your host, James Somaru, and this is your weekly Sunday session. Hey everybody, hope you're having a wonderful week this week. So on the episode today, I've got a conversation that I had during the week with my friend Giles Morrison, and he is a doctor by background and describes himself now as a clinical UX specialist. It's an interesting field, UX, and Giles talks about, well, starts with a really good definition of it, I think, but basically talks about how he found his way into it, what his passion was for it. But actually, we ended up chatting about why UX is so important at the moment in healthcare. I think with the advent of health tech and everything that we're doing in health tech, building products that can change the way healthcare is delivered, be that software that clinicians interact with, be those medical devices that are used on patients, the user experience of them is becoming ever more important. Well, I suppose it's always been important. I guess it's just ever more appreciated in modern times. But anyway, I hope you enjoy the chat. So Giles, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing this morning? I say this morning, this afternoon, because time flies, doesn't it? How are you doing this afternoon, buddy? I'm doing well. I'm, I'm doing great. It's, it's slightly grey skies here in Germany, in Badenheim, but um, life is good. I can't I can't complain. We're living that pandemic life, the so-called new normal. Yeah. But I'm doing well. Badenheim, did you just say? Is that how yeah. I say that? Whereabouts yeah. is that in Germany? So it's about an hour's drive west from Frankfurt. So okay. So. I'm going to pretend where no Frankfurt is now as well. Um, <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, Frankfurt. I know that. Um, <laughs> I've been to Munich and Berlin, as I said to you slightly earlier. But uh, yeah, I don't know where that is. But listen, so uh, I'm super excited to have you on, buddy, because um, you are obviously the big name in clinical UX. I, arguably, you coined the term. I don't know. We'll probably get into it. But um It'd be great for our listeners, obviously, because we know each other quite well, but it'd be great for our listeners if you could tell us a bit about your story. Sure. So I work as a clinical UX specialist. I've been in this field now for about six years. This is after working as a medical doctor for three years. I was born and raised in East London, born at the Royal London, studied there when I did medicine. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it was really cool. Studying the place you were born. That's right. And then um, moved on to, to Yorkshire, kicking and screaming. I had no desire to go to Grimsby as a foundation year one doctor. Uh, made a man out of me, though. And yeah. so really great fish and chips in Cleethorpes. That was <laughs> um, Shout out to any listeners in Cleethorpes. <laughs> so medicine for three years. I quickly realized, though, in my second rotation, it was a surgical rotation, that this isn't quite working out for me. I love working with patients. It's an honor and a privilege. To, to look after the sick. They're willing to, you know, place their lives in your hand for you to do what's necessary to, to get them better, completely depend on you. So that's something that's very humbling. But the work-life balance, or as a good friend of mine, um, Damien Sherman, he would always switch it and switch it up and say, it's actually life-work balance. Life has to come before work. <laughs> nice. So, um, the life-work balance just wasn't working for me. Like I wasn't happy having to be hundreds of miles away from friends and family in London. Some of the voluntary work I was doing for um, young people and arts and crafts and music and stuff like that. I wasn't happy about the night shifts. They're not good for the body. Yeah. Um, I wasn't happy about the long day shifts, the weekend shifts. I wasn't happy about 
not being able to be as creative as I was born and destined to be. Like I'm a very creative person. And if I can't be creative, I'm not really being myself. Yeah. Much as I loved looking after the patients, I ultimately was like, well, I've got to love myself even more. I'm no good to anybody if I'm not happy. That really chimes with me, man, because I can, I can remember really vividly saying to people when I was in the first throes of, of kind of medicine, throwing me about a bit, I remember saying to somebody that I think night shifts and weekends affect me more than they affect everybody else. Mm. I can remember really, really vividly thinking that. And that, that was, it was like a, a slightly turning point. I think actually when I started to think I'm, I'm different to these people because I don't love it as much. And yeah. I, I completely feel you on the creativity thing as well. Like I was, I was super into music and house music and you know, I was DJing a bit and very much bedroom DJing, but still, <laughs> and like, you know, using logic and creating tracks and stuff. And it was funny, like when, when I started being a doctor, I started to feel like I wasn't entitled to that creativity anymore as if it made me kind of less serious as if it made me kind of childlike and mm. I wasn't allowed to do that anymore almost because of, no, nobody was telling me that but it certainly felt that way. And obviously the the culture of that kind of music and stuff is that you're out until 6am and all the rest of it. So you do have to kind of knock that on the head, but even still I stopped even listening to the music and, and stuff like that. And it really knocked my creativity. And I think that, that did end up having a bit of an impression on me because, because it becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, doesn't it? Because you stop, then you're creative and you get more into the work side of things and you, you rely on it more for your happiness and it's not delivering you that happiness. And, I don't know, it starts to be a bit of a cycle, but yeah, totally feel you, mate. Yeah, I think when you come to those realisations that you're a bit different, you are very much put into a box. Unfortunately, you're kind of told that because you see yourself as different, therefore you are different, but it means that you're no longer part of our in-group anymore. Mm. And uh, it's very, very isolating when you do that. Because as much as you're still doing great care, because let's be honest, that's the point of being a doctor. You're in a responsibility to look after the health and well-being of your patients. You shouldn't be having to be seen as someone different because you want to have a life outside of the time that you're looking after people. Yeah. And I'm sure we can all attest to that as people who have left um, working as a doctor or even a conventional career as a doctor. You don't stop looking after people. You don't stop trying to they're happy. Like that because most people that go into medicine that's what drives them is the desire to make other people happy and yeah. the main way we do that is by keeping them healthy you know the greatest wealth you can have is your health yeah you know? so when you are put in that box when you are set aside it's quite unfortunate because that transition that you go and i felt this that transition when you go from working as a doctor and in my case becoming a designer it's a very long one because a there's not there's far more doctors staying in medicine they're leaving obviously otherwise we'll have sure. a disaster. but you know especially in my case i didn't know anybody that was doing what i was doing when i first started out and even now <laughs> over six years later i still only know a handful of doctors <laughs> on what i've done and even then they've not done it quite like i have i'm the only one that works full-time in design out yeah. of any doctor that I know who specializes in UX and, you know, designing in healthcare. Yeah. I'm the only one. So let's go back to basics. Let's mm-hmm. talk about what UX 
is, what clinical UX is, what design is, and kind of how you got into it and found this kind of love for it. Yeah. So UX is short for user experience. There's loads of definitions that you'll find online. And the godfather of UX is often associated with it. Gentleman, Donald Norman, or Don Norman for short, used to be um, UX architect and the like at um, Apple many moons ago. Uh-huh. So he's got his own definition that's going to be very long-winded. I highly respect Don Norman. I've had wonderful conversations with him over the past, but I like to keep it simple. For me, UX is about the experiences and the interactions that people have with anything that's been designed. So you're going to have an experience with your front door. You're going to have an experience with a coffee mug. You're going to have an experience when you're booking a flight. You're going to have an experience when you're checking in for that flight in person, let alone online. You have an experience with the rain, but that's only because of you using an umbrella or you being sheltered. Like the rain itself wasn't designed by humans. That's nature. Yeah. But the interaction you have with it is through, you know, the clothes that you wear, the umbrella that you're using, so on and so forth. So it's quite broad. UX spills out into everything. And so you'll hear people come up with these other terms, customer experience, service design. These are commonly terms. To me, as a purist in this field, it's all user experience. It's all about the interaction that someone has and the experience that they're having with anything that has been made by another human being. But then when you go into clinical UX, that is a niche within healthcare UX, which itself is a specialism within UX. So healthcare UX is about those same interactions and experiences, but limits the scope to anything related to healthcare. So healthcare technology and services. So when you have to book an appointment with your GP, when you actually have to get a prescription from the chemist, the process that you go for in order to access your own health record because you're transferring from one doctor to, to another or moving countries or something like that. Could even be health promotion. You know, you see a poster telling you you should have your fruit and five, I'm sorry, fruit and veg five a day. Mm-hmm. You know, this is all health promotion. This there's an experience that you're going to have with any of those sort of things that's been made, technology and services. But clinical UX is much more specialized, it's much more nuanced. So you still need to know what you need to know in order to do good UX and good healthcare UX. But we're focusing it now on the experience that primarily clinicians and patients have with that healthcare technology and services. So that's when you start looking at electronic health record systems, where when they're not designed very well, it can kill people. Literally, you can make mistakes, which can lead to someone's death or serious harm. We're talking about digital therapeutics, some sort of digital product that can prevent, manage, or treat a disease. So a patient uses that, and if it's not done correctly, it could kill them, or it could prolong suffering. You know, we're talking about solutions now where there's heavy regulation, there's in-depth knowledge about medicine that is required, you know, and it's not something you're going to learn simply by reading a Wikipedia page. <laughs> it's, it's exploring the fact that there's many different people that's going to be impacted by the solution that you're creating, not just there's so many users, but there's so many different people that are in this ecosystem that you're designing for. So it's a lot more complicated than general healthcare UX. It's not something that you can take lightly. It's a wonderful field. It's just as fulfilling. In fact, no, I'm going to tell you about it. It's more fulfilling than me working as a doctor. It, it relies on skills and knowledge that I had to acquire from a medical degree. And it takes it to 10. You know, it really levels mm. up. 
the fact that I still have to go through a diagnosis process. I still have to, you know, ask questions, go through some sort of research methods, history taking, examination, investigation, like the good old days as a doctor. But you apply those principles of exploring the problem as much as possible to understand it, to then find the ideal solution to that problem, which would be, in our case as doctors, a diagnosis and a treatment plan. Now it's about creating this new digital product, this new service that can now impact multiple lives, hundreds, thousands, millions of lives, not just the individual patient um, at hand. So it's, it's a wonderful job. It's the most fulfilling job I've ever had in my life. Um, I'm happy, more than happy to be in this field. So hopefully that, that explains um, as very briefly what, what UX is and where it is at in clinical UX. It certainly does. I absolutely love that definition, which I think if I've remembered it correctly was it's the experience that you have with something that's been designed. I think that's wonderfully simple and really easy to get on board with. And when you say it like that, really easy to understand why it, why it might require an expert and that not everybody's an expert in it, although we can come on to that. What I want to talk to you first about is I really enjoy the fact that you've just said that it's more fulfilling for you than it was being a doctor. And I think the reason that I'm, I'm so happy that you've said that is because in order to say that you have to fight this kind of, for me anyway, this almost, I don't know whether it's guilt. In fact, I think it is guilt. This, or this is an element of it. Guilt for leaving clinical medicine and leaving your service directly to patients in order to do something that makes you happier as an individual. I think that requires a heck of a lot of courage to, to say what you've just said. And I kind of skirt around it. And I, you know, I tend to make excuses of just like, you know, I, like you said at the start, you know, I loved treating patients and, you know, it's a shame that I just couldn't do it and all that, all that sort of stuff. But I, again, I, I think it requires such a self-awareness to figure out what it is that is going to make you happy as an individual, which by the way, still does mean a service to patients at the end of it. Yeah. And I think I think it's just really nice that you can say that. I mean, the, the question that I've got, though, is what led you to the love of this? And I, I imagine it was probably something that you always enjoyed in one way, shape or form of design. But what then, what then, because it must have been a heck of a love for it to basically carve out a brand new path in this new clinical UX, which, I, as you say, only a handful of them even exist. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, what, what led you to the love of it? So I think um, I'm probably coming to the end of a generation of UX professionals that kind of just fell into the role. I think there's a lot more people that are getting into it now who do it with their eyes wide open. Mm, with intent, yeah. And they've heard of UX and they're like, yeah, I would like to be a UX designer or a UI designer or something like that. And so for me, when I first started out in UX, I never even knew it was a UX job. It wasn't a UX job technically because it wasn't in the job title. <laughs> it's I, just common sense, right? <laughs> yeah, well, it's also the fact that I'd never heard of UX at that time. So we're talking about working as a junior clinical analyst, a guy in St. Thomas's. It was basically someone from a clinical background who understands clinical pathways, what does it mean to treat the sick? What does it mean to work in a hospital? Oh, what does it mean to use healthcare technology in a hospital setting and actually helping to create new solutions or build on the electronic health record system in the hospital. So very similar to a business analyst, but you're leveraging medical knowledge and experiences. Mm. And uh, so that job was a lot of UX work, 
we never knew it, but you know, someone would give you a brief, you would go and explore it through interviews, through talking with colleagues, trying to really understand what's happening, and then think, well, what would be the best solution here? So you come up with all kinds of different ideas and you test them out. And when you get some results from the testing, you, you make necessary changes to what you've created as a solution. Then you release it and you test it some more because you want to make sure what you've released actually works. And this is a product development life cycle, but it's also the design process. You're supposed to explore the problem to then explore the solution because how do you find the right solution to the right problem unless you explore the problem first? So where you've got to do research. So as soon as I realized that this is actually what I was doing as a doctor, that's the first thing that was telling me that I'm definitely on the right path. The next thing is that when I was told what UX was and that it was actually a career, this was taught to me by um, a teacher of a prototyping tool called Actual. So not a lot of designers use Actual these days, but it's quite complicated. It's extremely wonderful prototyping tool. I love it, but a lot of designers are more um, into InVision and Figma. But anyway, I was being taught about this in about February, 2015. And he said that he's a UX designer and he does contract and he's earning good money from him. I'm like, okay, I like good money. <laughs> and he's telling me how, you know, it's actually a career. He's got a PhD in human computer interaction. It's actually mm. a proper nice field. I never heard of it at that point. Literally, I never heard of it. So the powers that be got me to be on three days of training with this man instead of just one day. And that was definitely one of the most important career defining moments up to even to this day, like we're talking about good five years later, that still had super, super impact on my career because me now knowing about UX, knowing that it was a career path, knowing that it's something that can pay me well, but also satisfy my curiosity, give me the ability mm. to do work in healthcare i threw myself at it found mentors read a lot of books got into uni again did a master's in human computer interaction <laughs> and it's like it's just bringing together this joy and passion that i have for being creative in visual design being creative as someone who just problem solves being yeah. able to people being able to connect to people being able to create solutions to real problems that are not always easy to not even just solve but even define like there's certain projects i've worked on where people don't know what is the first starting point that where to begin even those sort of things very intellectually stimulating for me and that's why i love i love the job it, you know it keeps me thinking on a daily basis it's something that i can always teach but it's also something where i can always learn something literally on a daily basis not just on the projects but it's new tools and techniques it's new design patterns, you know, how am I actually going to create this solution? It's not just digital products either, it's services. Like how does a human interact with another human to get an, a positive end result for their health? And so I can't think of a better career. It's something that really excites me on a daily basis. That's awesome, man. You can hear, you can hear the passion in your voice as well. And I think that it's amazing, isn't it? Just how the resistance to your career just sort of drops when you actually like something because it's the stuff that you are doing in your spare time it is the articles that you choose to read it's the yeah. social media posts that you choose to follow and all of a sudden you end up being extremely knowledgeable you've got your finger on the pulse you, you know what's going on and, and all the information that you're getting is around the thing that you actually do and i think that 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 does speak volumes definitely and and moving on to kind of i suppose 
where we are right now in in terms of in terms of health and technology and all those different things i imagine that you've seen a bit of an uptick i suppose in in kind of demand and well you might not have i don't know for various reasons but i would assume anyway that with the with the advent of of health tech and a certainly a growing industry with lots more money being poured into it both from investors as well as there's now profitable businesses there's Mm -hmm. a couple of ipos there's there's money flowing into this now and there's there's demand from patients and well particularly patients to have a better experience in things like medical devices and from clinicians in things like software that I would, maybe I wouldn't assume that you've had an uptick actually in clinical UX, but I would certainly say that the, there's a need for it. And so I'm interested then in a field that you say is a handful of people with the boom of health tech, has the, has the requirement for design been appreciated yet? Is it something, a designer's a group of people that people are now looking to as, I don't know, co-founders of startups or, you know, early hires, or indeed a department's popping up in bigger corporates, you know, what's the, what does it look like clinical UX right now in health tech? Mm -hmm. So I think first I want to answer a question. You kind of asked it before and it ties in with this is, you know, this whole concept of design is a term that a lot of people are using. What does it even mean? Mm. Design ultimately is problem solving. When you speak to a true designer, so we're not talking about someone who's like a graphic designer, unless they see themselves as a true designer, someone who's been trained in a craft of design. This is a problem-solving discipline. That's ultimately what it is. The way that they solve that problem, or rather the output, the solution to the problems that they solve could be a picture, could be a book, you know, it could be a building. It could be anything. Mm. Ultimately, is solving a problem. That's what a designer is supposed to do. And it's where it ties in with design thinking. A lot of people hear about that. It's about having the mindset that supports and the right solution to the real problems, not just right problems, the real problems. Someone can be very superficial saying that they want a particular product where it's not the product they need, it's some other new change to their business model. That's a problem-solving exercise that you're going through to even discover what's the real problem. So that skill set has been needed. That professionals that can do that has been needed from the dawn of time. There's always been problems that have needed to be solved. And I think in healthcare, historically, it's lagged behind profoundly when it comes to anything remotely close to UX. So medicine, on the other hand, is only grown. It's gone from strength to strength on practically a daily basis. There's always some new medicine, some new surgical procedure, some yeah, new interesting. Well, some new advancement in digital technology or, or health tech that can improve the provision of healthcare services, like to do the job of someone is sick in front of me right now, I need to make them better type. Thing. Yes. But when it comes to really embracing UX to make products and services that are useful or easy for someone to figure out how to use them that are fully accessible whether someone's got a real or perceived disability handicap because sometimes people see age or not speaking a particular language as a disability as a handicap for them and is it even satisfying to use the product to use the service these are areas that have been heavily neglected in healthcare you see in fintech you get the mobile app from your bank and it's a joy to use most of the time yeah. you know you want to go and buy something online through Amazon, Topshop, or some other shop online. 
it's a joy, like it's a, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. When you're talking about trying to access your own medical record in 2020 in a heavily developed country, depending on who your doctor is, depending on who else normally deals with your health record, you could be fighting tooth and nail to try and get hold of your own data. Yeah. <laughs> so I have a theory on why I think this is. And correct me if I'm wrong, but my theory, and it might not be my theory because I've spoken to so many people, so this may have directly come from someone else. And apologies if I'm plagiarizing. Like an artist, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> my theory, my theory, is that the users are not the payers. And therefore, mm -hmm. you cannot vote with your feet, per se. You cannot stop using a medical device because it is used on you. Therefore, it is bought by somebody else, used ultimately by a clinician on you as the end user. And therefore, you have no control. So therefore, the, des the design of it is not actually incentivized for the people it is used on. If at best it is it is incentivized to be designed on the people that are holding it in their hand and using it on you, so yeah, in in the same way that I suppose a surgical knife would would be designed with the surgeon like at, at the forefront of the mind rather than the scar it might leave on the patient, something mm -hmm. like that, right? Because actually that's where the control lies, because it's actually going to be the clinical director, the surgical department that's going to make the purchase, so and they're going to feel pressure from the other clinicians, the surgeons, they're not really going to feel pressure from the patients because you're saving their life. Who cares about a scar sort of thing? Um, that's my theory anyway. What are your thoughts? I agree with you. I think it's, it's more than just that, but you're, you're, you're definitely close to what I think is the main cause. If I'll just extend what you're saying. Yeah. It's the fact that the actual people that are really affected by the product, the service, the object, whatever it is, the process, that you are designing or the process, the product, object, service, whatever else that you're buying or having to lease, the actual people that are mainly affected by it are not included in the decision-making process. Right. Uh, included in the decision. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The decision-making process that guides making this solution or guides to purchasing it or even rolling it out. Because yeah. there's many factors at play here, but across that whole spectrum of when decisions have to be made, the real people that need to be involved, they're not, they're not there. This mm. is why you have, for example, chief clinical information officers who are hugely enthusiastic about digital health, health and tech, very influential because they're a senior clinician, speaking on behalf of junior doctors about the processes, the situations that they face, mm. despite those same clinicians not having to face those situations at all. So yeah. let's give an example, okay? Not to name anybody, not to shame anybody, but it's just an example off the top of my head. You could have a chief clinical information officer, CCIO, who recognizes that there's some issues with this form that junior doctors will need to fill in in order to see their patients in A&E or say acute assessment or something like that. Now, unless they speak to the doctors or they train those doctors in doing what they do, okay, or actually do the job that those junior doctors mm. do, they will never have a full understanding of the situation that they're facing. So when they start making huge recommendations or, or rather even insisting on certain features, certain ways that this form 
is supposed to be created that these junior doctors have to fill in. It's a mistake from, from the first moment they open their mouths. Literally, it's a mistake. <laughs> why, why are you having yeah. such a strong opinion about something that you don't have in-depth knowledge of? And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that they have no knowledge. They definitely do. They're a doctor in the same hospital that of will course. have to see those patients at some point as a senior clinician. But it doesn't matter you having all that knowledge. You're yeah. not, you don't have all of the knowledge. Why can't you even just at least speak to the clinicians? Yeah. That's why when, when people ask me, you know, Giles, you're doing clinical UX, you're a doctor, you know about medicine, so you're making a product that's aimed at doctors in diseases that you've treated many times over the last three years of your medical career. Why do you need to do research? It's because I hit the, the, the ground jogging, not running. Yeah. Mm. I have an understanding. Yeah. I have an understanding of what's going on. I have memories, I have experiences, but I don't have all of the answers to the questions that I have to make the best mm. that you want. So I have to do some research. You have to ask questions. And let's say that, you know, in that, in that example there, we, you know, we might be, in fact, <laughs> thinking back, something that I did when I was an F1 was um, we had this horrendous discharge summary, which just had loads of irrelevant information, loads of drop down menus. The computers mm -hmm. were slow anyway. This was just going to slow it down even further. The discharge summaries were piling up, all the rest of it. I, at the time, obviously, knew, I was filling in more discharge summaries than anybody else because I was on MAU, the medical assessment unit. So we were discharging like you know, 10, 20 people a day. And so I kind of had a view on what I thought was the right thing to, to be doing by literally just asking the gps what did they want to hear knowing that those forms go to gps it was just what do you guys actually want to know about mm -hmm. um and kind of went about this process of 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 redesigning the forms obviously i had no design experience though i had i had no i had not been trained in design thinking at that point i didn't even i wasn't even aware of design thinking or anything like that. i just tried to kind of solve the problem which obviously made it really difficult and, run, and i learned a lot and ran into loads of problems i mean there are going to be people listening that, that that want to know i suppose a bit of design thinking what are your thoughts on design thinking as kind because you can study it right for years you can yeah. just you can study design thinking but then also you can read quite a short book on it and and people will say that they know about it so what where do you sit on design thinking in terms of the, I suppose, the, the academic nature of it? And is it a good thing that everybody's now trained in it a little bit or, or is a little bit an a bad thing? Like, where do you sit on that kind of scale? Yeah, I have a love-hate relationship with design thinking. <laughs> I love it because it is the bedrock of what I do. I, I have a mindset that for me to solve any problem, any problem, like what, when should I decide to stop watching this film I'm watching so I can go to the toilet because I really want to watch the film? You know, what should I have for dinner? How do I make this digital product for this multi-million pound project? You know, it doesn't matter what the problem is, you can apply design thinking to it. Mm. It's just, you know, have you gone through a process where you can find the right solution to the real problem at hand, like the biggest issue that needs solving, where that problem solved, other problems become easier to solve that thing, right? So I love yeah. it. That's what I do on a daily basis. But I hate it because it's being taught to people in such a way that if you've done a workshop for maybe half the day, suddenly you can replace someone like myself. I've been in the field for six years. I've had formal training. I've had learnings from mentoring, from books, through networking, from actually working on projects. 
There's, you know, those variety of different ways of some self-directed learning. This is all required in order to develop a skill set that's taken years, not not hours, not minutes, years. Mm. You know, it takes time to develop this skill. And that's what I hate about it is that there's people that's abusing design thinking, convincing them that it's such a simple skill set to have that anybody can do it. But I, I liken working as a designer as working as a doctor. Generally speaking, lives aren't on the line when you're working as a designer, but the complexity of the task at hand, the number of variables that you need to keep in mind in order to do a great job and the time commitment to develop that learning, that to develop that knowledge that's needed to do that job is very, very comparable. In fact, mm. there's an article I wrote about, you know, five reasons why we need more clinicians doing UX and it leverages that point, the fact that clinicians know about design thinking already it's inherent in what you do you go through a process to identify the best treatment to the actual problem that a patient has which requires going through some sort of investigation examination history taking process that's research ultimately it's research yeah you get a treatment plan and then you investigate make sure your treatment plan has actually done anything so design thinking is very good but it feels to me that anybody who just says that they're a design thinker they, it feels like they're more likely to get a job than a clinical UX designer would because people who don't know about UX, they latch on to design thinking with this, like I said. I ah, got it. So it's two different, it's two different things completely. It's two different things. It's two different things because design thinkers, they tend not to, by definition, be practitioners of design. Got it. Most of the people that do design thinking are there who's like, oh, you've got an idea. Let's go through a design thinking workshop to understand your idea a bit more. And then very, very quickly in a design sprint that lasts like three days, let's come up with a prototype for it. Mm. Now, you're not coming up historically with the, the totality of a product like Facebook, like Amazon, like a rocket ship, like, um, like some wearable technology. You're not going to get to the fullness of those rich features through prototyping in three days especially when the people in the room are not trained designers, trained developers, trained product um, uh, uh, managers and the like, you know, and even the marketing, like these are products that are commercially viable. How has someone thought about how this is going to be given to the end user? Where's the money that pays for all of this, but the money as the revenue to come in, like all of this takes a hell of a lot more than three, four, five yeah. working days. And so yeah. that's why I'm quite against design thinking when it's not done properly. Mm. It's supposed to be another tool or in this case, more like a methodology or a mindset that is amongst others to get the job done by trained professionals, mm. trained professionals. And because people are now through certain clever marketing touting that design thinking is, is, is what's needed and not so much clinical UX, that's why the design thinkers are always being asked for. Same as mm. UX UI design, a very common role you'll find if you do a little Google search or something on LinkedIn. This UX UI designer basically means someone who's a graphic designer who can quickly design an app. That's most often the case, what is wanted by those professionals. But it's in the name. It should be UX and UI. So you know how to do the user experience work, which is research and design tasks. You should know how to do a variety of visual design tasks in creating the user interface, the UI part, to make sure that it's easy to use, it's fun to use, people are less likely to make mistakes, that it's attractive, so on and so forth. This skill set takes a long time to develop. Yeah. 
but everyone knows that you need a UX designer now. So that that's changed over the years. People are like, yeah. oh, let's get let's get the designers in now. But no, not enough people are talking about clinical UX. Mm. I'm not surprised by that because I only coined the term back in 2016. <laughs> and we'll talk about what you're doing on, on those lines. I can remember um, I had a guy called Andrew Barakoff, I think, on this podcast a long, long time ago, a guy from GSK who was the head of design over there. Mm-hmm. He was talking about um, this notion that people quite often say, oh, let's get the designers in now. You know, after they've decided what the product is, after they've decided what it should really do, after they've decided who the customer is, after they've decided what features it should have, and they just say to the designers, make this look pretty. And you just basically, that's the quickest way to insult a group of extremely intelligent and people that are excellent at what they do. And he said, you've got to get people in from day one. And so my question is, does this, does design and and well, clinical UX, if if we're going to, talk about designing a piece of software or a medical device and piece of hardware or whatever it is, is it, and I think I asked him the same question, actually, when's the best time to actually bring someone into that process? Because he said day one, there should be a co-founder. And actually, you know, increasingly I can see the value there because there's, there's a lot under the umbrella of design and it's almost a, it's almost a blueprint of innovation or actually even just the, the ability to critically appraise the processes that you have, not necessarily even designing things, quite literally the way that you go about your job, the way that your company hires people, the way that your company speaks to customers or what your sales funnel looks like. It seems to me that that design designers or even people trained in, be it clinically, actually even a different type of UX, have this method of thinking, which can actually streamline quite a lot quite early on. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I think designers are essential to any business, hmm. any, any, any business, even if you're working on your own. There's some part of what that a designer skill set can have huge impact in what you're doing. Like whether it's something as simple as well, you need a website that can communicate your business to others so you can get clients down to actually providing the product or providing the service to your clients. Hmm. doesn't matter what, what it is. Designers will help you solve those problems. They'll answer those questions either yeah. directly from their own experiences or most likely the case of them going through a research process followed by a designing process yeah. where they come up with a solution. It's always invaluable to have designers. It's just the thing is that it's been seen too much as putting lipstick on a pig. It's yeah. Just putting something, tacking it on at the end. It's like, like, like you heard before, you, you need to have it from the beginning. Mm. I would be able to say, have you got an idea in the shower? I'm going to get wet then. <laughs> you need to tell me as soon as the idea comes. What are you waiting for? <laughs> oh, that is, that's funny. I like that. Um, <laughs> so I'm curious, is your life then one streamlined, gloriously well-designed series of processes that everything is just you know seamless and resistanceless as you go through your day i think you're describing heaven mate (laughs) i'm Uh, I'm very human i'm very human Um, i'm fallible i make mistakes i'm lazy i'm tired (laughs) Um, i'm far from perfection but that's the thing about being a designer is that you strive for perfection Mm. but the best of designers recognize that you won't ever reach it so it's recognizing what compromises is is not a compromise it's just the nature of 
having a great product in the reality of all the other design constraints that you have because that's true freedom actually as a designer is that you're not told just create anything like i can't just create anything <laughs> I, i'm not omnipotent omniscient i don't have that sort of power to just create anything what i can do though is given the circumstances given the variables given the resources available to me the time constraints so on and so forth i will give you the best solution that i can yeah you solve problem yeah that's that's what the problem solve. Like, yeah i get it i get it yeah and so on that note you have got a course that you've set uh-huh. up for people to learn this stuff tell me all about it that's right. So I launched the Clinical UX Academy very recently. The whole point of it, as it ties in with the Clinical UX Association, is to offer training, support, knowledge, wisdom on the topic of clinical UX. So in particular, this 12-month part-time clinical UX course is designed specifically with um, clinicians as well as designers and non-designers in mind, people who want to apply design thinking, design skill set, understanding of psychology, healthcare, technology, and being actually a great professional, applying all those different core competencies of clinical UX to actual healthcare projects. Could be a digital health product, it could be some sort of healthcare service that needs to be designed, doesn't matter where it is. Could be something in any part of the world, it's all done online as well, so people can put this skill set to the benefit of people literally around the globe. So it's part-time, so teaching is offered over the weekend. It involves lecture-based teaching that I provide, as well as problem-based learning, where people are in small groups working on set challenges, set tasks, which they then present their findings as a group to each other, and then obviously to me to critique and offer advice, and assignments that are unique to the students. So for example, I've got one student, who comes from a paramedic background, and he is actually carving out his own career as a digital paramedicine consultant. I mentioned him before, Damien Sherman. So mm. he's, he's a great guy. And him being able to apply clinical UX to paramedicine is quite refreshing. You know, I've got even veterinary um, doctors who are signing up, who are looking at how they can apply clinical UX principles to the health and well-being of vets, but also the health and well-being of animals and when you talk about veterinary medicine it's like mind-blowing when you compare it to human health human medicine like we're mm-hmm. talking about there's an animal that's on a farm that's ready to go to slaughter but there's an animal that's on a farm because then being there for years is them providing service then there's animals that are in a pet shop versus in someone's home then there's animals in the wild that are semi-domesticated or actually completely wild like there's complete different situation <laughs> that some of them are animals, some of them are birds. Like, come on, man, it's getting crazy. So when they start talking about clinical UX, it really can blow your mind. And so what I love about the course is that it's empowering clinicians, it's empowering designers, it's empowering people even new to the whole concept of design hmm. to make a difference in the lives of people. And like I said, with those few people that's done veterinary medicine in the lives of animals as well. Amazing. And before we finish, dude, I love I love that by the way. <laughs> there's just there's so there's so much that applies to you know, when I think about this podcast and I think about the listeners and the people that get in touch and and stuff, there's so many people that want to learn how to innovate. And I get this a lot from particularly 
students of, of various clinical specialties, um, doctors, nurses, physios, you know, the lot of, of where do I start? And it seems that this is actually a great place to start because I think yeah. the thing that this will spark in people is the curiosity of what could be different and the yeah. realization that things don't have to be the way they've always been. That seems to be at the heart of this. And I really like that. I like, I like the thought of inspiring a generation to not accept the status quo. <laughs> Basically just, yeah, just to inspire a generation of anarchy. I'd love that. Just complete <laughs> disregard. For, <laughs> maybe not total anarchy, but at least, at least the ability to question everything and think, you know, if I'm not if I'm not happy with the day job, is there anything that I can improve around it? Can I look yeah. at some of these systems and how to improve them? I think this does give you that tool set. But my final question is going to be before you go, a bit tribal. This I think with uh, with answers. But who does this the best, mate? What what is the best brand? Is it Apple? Is it Google? Is it Amazon? Is it Facebook? Mm. Who who does it the best? Well, definitely take Facebook out of that list because they do too much nonsense. <laughs> I think um fine, I don't think Mark's listening, so that's fine. It's a good question though, because what I like about Amazon, even though there's a lot of dodgy stuff there, like literally <laughs> oh, they die in the job because they've been pushed too much in the warehouses. This is facts. But what, what I like about Amazon is that when you are actually a consumer and you've got a problem, you literally just have to send them a message. You don't even have to call them, just send them a message, they call you back almost instantly. And they just give you free things to make you feel happy. They just wow. give you a voucher. They extend your Prime membership. They just resolve your problem. Like they go almost always above and beyond what's needed to keep you a happy customer. But that's, mm. they do on purpose because when you're happy, you're a customer. Happy customer means you stay with them. Mm. That's why they're doing that. I think that net promoter score, mate. This is it. I think for me, though, I am um, much more into Google than Apple. I much prefer my Pixel than the iPhone that I have for business purposes. I've been using Google products for, for Yonks for, for many years. I love using um, Google Docs. Google Sheets isn't quite as powerful as Excel, but I, for my personal needs, it doesn't need to be. I can mm. go from to simply in Google Sheets, same with Google Docs. I'm really, really happy with, with their products. They've also got a few shady things that they're up to. <laughs> nothing gets past you mate yeah <laughs> but, but, but this is the nature of the world as i mentioned before nothing is perfect yeah and that's and it's something that you kind of have to accept but when i see it as like you know can i live without apple or can i live without google i can probably live without apple i mm. struggle to live without google there you go from a from a true expert cannot live without google there we go so giles it's been an absolute pleasure having you on buddy if people want to get in touch with you either to have a chat or to learn more about the course or to find out what you do and more about clinical ux what is the best way for people to find you or any of that stuff sure so you can definitely find me on linkedin dr giles morrison g-y-l-e-s because um i'm a bit special like that <laughs> um more about the course it's a clinicalux.org. You'll find more information on the Clinical UX Academy page. And you can find me also on Instagram, on Twitter, my personal website. Just, just Google me, Giles Morrison. You should come up with some results. Hopefully it's all positive stuff. I don't wear mankinis or anything dodgy like that. <laughs> sure if you look hard enough. Anyway, um, <laughs> cool. Giles, pleasure, buddy. We'll speak soon. Thank you. Take care now. Bye-bye. 
So there you go, guys. Hope you enjoyed that chat with me and Dr. Giles Morrison. If you want to get in touch with him, you can head to the description of the episode to find about his course and all other bits and bobs about him too. So also going on this week, you can head to the description episode to check out the latest edition of Health Tech Pigeon, which is my newsletter, the One Minute Health Tech Roundup, delivered to your inbox every single Sunday. And this week, we're on episode 10, so time is really flying, 10 weeks in. It's called Femtech, Mentech and VC. So there's some news about Femtech startups, about, well, I suppose the opposite, Mentech startups that are doing things for males. Google, Amazon, Facebook and Apple have uh, locked their sites on health insurance. Quit Genius, startup founded out of Imperial. Uh, they've had a study that's come out that's shown them to be very effective for smoking cessation. Um, AI clinical transcripts, there's bits and bobs about VC investment, uh, loads of cool bits and bobs in this week's episode, and uh, a couple of podcasts to listen to too, including uh, Digital After Day by Dan Kendall. Uh, and you can see the latest episode of that in there. So, lots of bits going on. Head to the description episode, get in touch with me if you want. And uh, yeah, hope you have a good one. I'll be down the airwaves on Thursday with a brand new episode then. So, have a good one and see you then. <laughs>